I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that breaks down every episode of The Sopranos one at a time. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get shows. And if you like what we're doing, please spread the word. If you'd like a pictorial and caption companion to the podcast, follow at Pada Bing on Instagram. We still have a few more Soprano Session books to give away. So if you're interested, tag Pada Bing in an Instagram story for a chance to win. And as always, thank you for listening and being a part of this amazing and surreal journey. This is a conversation with Alan Sepinwall and Matt Zollerseitz, co-authors of the new book, The Sopranos Sessions. They took time in between hosting the Sopranos Film Festival in New York City to talk to me about the show, their book, and the new revelations found within it. Great guys to talk with. It could have gone on for hours, but we had to collectively restrain ourselves and a great book to spend time with and dip into for many years to come. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the conversation. Guys, thank you so much for doing the podcast. Thanks for the interest. Happy to be here. So I just want to lay a quick foundation. How did you two first sync up? Well, I wrote for the Star-Ledger. I got a job at the Star-Ledger of Newark, New Jersey in 1995, and Alan came on board the following year, and we were both on the TV beat in 1997. And then The Sopranos came on in 99, and that's uh, that's the rest of it, really. What were your jobs as they pertained to The Sopranos during its live run? Well, Matt, we worked on a dib system, and Matt was very smart enough to recognize that a show shot and set in our circulation area was going to be a big deal. So he called dibs on it before it even occurred to me that this might be a thing. And he had the show for the first three years, and then he got a little burned out on it and passed it off to me, and I covered it for seasons four through the end. That's interesting. What about the show burned you out? Well, it was it was a lot of things. One was just the, you know, the show, like... It wasn't just that I was watching the show. I was also sort of writing constantly about the show and interviewing people related to the show and also covering things in New Jersey related to the show. And I just thought, like, I can't do, I can't have 13 weeks of every single year being devoted to The Sopranos. You know, it was just crowding out everything else. But also, um, I didn't want to be living in that toxic headspace quite to the same extent, you know, because at that point, nobody knew how long the show was going to run. And, you know, it's a really well-made series, but not necessarily a world that you want to dwell in, like, continuously, nonstop for, like, a period of years, you know? And and I I sort of felt like I was weirdly simpatico with James Gandolfini because I, I talked to him. I got to know him a little bit uh, while covering the show, and, and I, I, it was at a some kind of HBO function. I think it was after season three or somewhere around in there where... They were negotiating their contracts. The, the actors were negotiating their contracts, and there was some. And of course, there was this big song and dance in the media about whether or not they were going to be coming back. And I said, uh, "Are you uh, are you coming back?" And he said, "I don't know yet." And I said, "Oh, get out of here! You're you're Tony Soprano, and it's one of the biggest shows on TV, and you're a big deal, and you're at the heart of it. And of course, you're coming back." And he said, "Well, I really haven't made up my mind yet because you know it's like obviously the money is great and." All of that, but but he said, uh, I have a hard time letting go of this guy and like him letting go of me. And he said that when I come home after playing him all day, it's no matter how long I spend in the shower, I can't wash the stink off. Interesting. 
And, you know, he, and some actors aren't like that. Some actors, they play the part. They, they, you know, Edie Falco said at the, at the opening night event for Sopranos Film Festival, uh, she said that she didn't have that problem, that she just, you know, she did, she played Carmela. She went home, she punched out and, and, and that was it, you know, but other people aren't like that. And Gandolfini wasn't. And I sort of, I understood it. I just, uh, I like, I, I, you know, I love the show. I admired the show. I just didn't want to live. I didn't want to live in it to that degree. And, and, uh, I don't know how Alan felt, you know, if you felt a tinge of that, but. Well, no, cause I'd spent three years being enormously jealous of you for, <laughs> you know, getting on the ground floor of the greatest thing to ever happen to star ledger TV coverage. So when you handed it to me, I was excited. And then I was kind of frustrated because, you know, the first thing I covered was season four, which, uh, is not most people's favorite season of the show. And I started to worry that you had, you had got out while the getting was good. And now I was just going to cover the inevitable decline phase. And fortunately it didn't turn out that way. You just mentioned great lines from the pilot. It's good to get in on the ground floor and, and the best is over. It's interesting how we subconsciously just, again, as, a, as super fans, we just subconsciously speak in Sopranos, whether we want to or not. Yeah, that's true. Generally, without getting into um, Susan Sontag territory, who spoke about criticism in depth, what is the mandate of a professional critic in your minds? I don't know. It depends on what kind of critic you are and who you're writing for, you know? I mean, I, I can only speak for myself, but I like to uh, I like to write about things holistically. I, I like to, you know, I take plot and characterization and theme and kind of social and political aspects into account, but I'm also interested in the image, the sound, the music, and things like that. Um, but other people focus on one particular area, and, you know, I, I think there's a lot of different ways to do it. Yeah, and, you know, yeah, basically the same. It's It depends on the outlet. It depends on the show. I would write about The Sopranos very differently for the Star Ledger than I would write necessarily for online. I would write about, you know, certain comedies differently from certain dramas. It, it, basically, I just write about what interests me and what things make me feel. Uh, sometimes it's literally just a binary, was this good, was this bad? Sometimes it's a... What, did the, what does this mean? You know, you can sort of dive deep or you can swim along the surface. Uh, it really just depends on what it is. There, there's no hard and fast rule for it. Alan, you got the first sole interview with David Chase after the show's run. What's the story about how that happened? Uh, that was a, a little bit of credit to forethought and a little bit of credit to guilt tripping which was about a year before the show ended at one of the final premieres. I went up to Chase at the party at Radio City afterwards. And I said, David, where are you going to be the day after the finale airs? And he said, uh, I don't know, probably my house in France. Why? And I said, I would love to talk to you after the finale is aired. And he said, okay. And that was the last we discussed of it. And in fact, I did several interviews with him in the months in between. And then finally, with a few weeks of, of the series to go, I reached out to his assistant, Jason, on the phone and said, hey, I'm calling to set up the interview with David because I know there's going to be a time difference, so we have to schedule it. And Jason says, let me get back to you. And a couple hours later, he gets back to me and says, uh, I'm sorry, David doesn't want to do it. He decided he was going to go radio silent after the finale aired. Uh, I, I'm sorry. And he hung up the phone, and it was like I'd been gut-punched because I was expecting this to be a huge thing. Uh, and it wasn't. And so then I just mounted a guilt offensive for a couple of weeks and I enlisted the help of Terrence Winter, who was kind of David's number two on the show uh, and who had helped me out with a bunch of things in the past. And both of us basically did variations on, but David, you gave your word. And I guess he valued the relationship and valued his word enough to do it, even though it was a pretty terse and reluctant interview. <laughs> I, I, I just got to tell you, Alan, you know, I mean, for all the, uh, 
the ribbing that you've that you've given me over this. Uh, you know, I handed you a lemon in season four. I don't think I ever told you this, but when that that uh, you know when the finale aired and you got the only interview with David Chase, I was at my I was at my father-in-law's house and at my in, the in-laws' house, and my father-in-law was reading an article in the New York Times that was quoting from your interview in the Star Ledger, and he said, "Hey, your old buddy Alan got the only interview with David Chase." And I was like, "Yes, he did." And there was a pause, and he goes, "That's pretty impressive, huh?" <laughs> I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> What's your point? <laughs> I'm sorry, man. <laughs> It is quite impressive, as is what you guys have accomplished with the Sopranos sessions, which we'll get to in just a moment. So so the book's preface is by Laura Lippman, um, and I'm just curious uh, what her nexus to the Sopranos was and how that came about. Well, I mean, you know, Laura Lippman, she's a best-selling mystery novelist. Um, you know, she's also married to David Simon, who co-created The Wire and a lot of other things for HBO. But our, our area of interest was more just her, her having written a lot about crime, a lot about the psychology of people who do crime. We knew that she was a fan of The Sopranos. We knew that she liked our writing. Uh, she's blurbed some of our past books, and she seemed just like a natural to do this. In all the years of work and thought and evaluation of this series that you guys have put into it, what have you internalized about why we love Tony Soprano? Oh, gosh, I think it's a lot of things, but I, I think... Um... I think James Gandolfini's performance had a lot to do with it. I think if you put a different actor in that part, you don't you don't get a character who is quite as relatable in spite of all the horrible things that he does, you know? Um, and, and when I think about, in the course of writing this book, learning about some of the different actors who were considered for that part at various incarnations of the show, including uh, Anthony LaPaglia and um, Stephen Van Zandt, you know, you imagine either of those guys as Tony, and I'm not saying it wouldn't be a good show, but it would just be so different. And and I don't know if you would necessarily feel for the character in the way that you do when you got somebody like Gandolfini in that part, but also just the way it's written. He's he, I, I, the thing I love about the show, and that is consistent, I think, on every level of the making of the show, is that the show doesn't really tell you what you're supposed to think of anybody. Mm. Yeah, in the also in the writing of the character, he's a murderous thief and sociopath and all of this, but he's also a victim of his upbringing and his conditioning, and he's struggling to escape himself. He's struggling to get outside of his own head, and 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 I think one of the things that's that's consistent across the board in the writing and direction and performance on The Sopranos is they don't tell you what you're supposed to think about him, and they don't tell you what you're supposed to think about the world that he inhabits or 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 whether or not the, you know, as Tony himself often points out, or, you know, or I should say claims uh, that, um, you know, he may be a violent criminal, but, you know, there are bigger criminals out there. Like that always sounded very self-serving to me. And I think it did to Melfi as well. He's probably the closest thing to a viewer surrogate. But, you know, it's it, and that that dance, that that dance of attraction and repulsion is, is at the heart of the show. And, you, and you're supposed to feel whiplash unless you're a sociopath yourself. You know, you're supposed to be saying... Yeah, yeah, Tony, I want you to win. I want you to triumph over your enemies. I want you to crush that person who, you know, is causing you problems. And and then and then it happens, and usually it's so kind of disgusting and sad and revolting that you're kind of horrified at yourself for ever wanting it. And that's that's the show. That's what the show always was. I want to piggyback on something you just said about viewer surrogate. Is Dr. Melfi the de facto viewer surrogate as far as you guys are concerned? Are there other characters that are play that role as well? She's probably the big one, don't you think, Alan? 
Yeah, because, you know, we don't spend a lot of time with the FBI. They're mostly inept. Uh, and everyone else is part of the mob. So you can't really look at Carmela as a viewer surrogate, you know, because she's complicit in what Tony does. They they use that word a few times in the run of the show. You can't she's look literally at Mar- She's account. literally married to the mob. Yeah, you know, I mean, Adriana is sometimes used in that way, but not really because she's dating Christopher and she knows what she does, what he does, and she likes when he brings the swag home to her. So there are characters who are more on the periphery, but all of them are involved. Even Artie Bucco is, he's in, you know, ankle deep at, at minimum. So Melfi's the closest you get. And even she enjoys spending time in Tony's company. And there are occasions over the life of the series where she is less therapist than unofficial consigliere, and that's... So there's not really any surrogate. So at that point, you find yourself taking Tony's point of view, and that's and that's a strategy that is had never been seen before on television to that degree. I mean, there had been shows that had toyed with it. There was a show on Fox called Profit where the main character was a bad person, and and you know he was driving the show, but it, I don't think it lasted more than a season, right, Alan? I don't believe so. It was pretty fast. It was over and done pretty fast. And there have been other other television shows where the main draw was a character who was unlikable or, um, how should we say, not a person that you're supposed to want to emulate, like not a person who exemplifies the right way to live. But, you know, they were the, the reason people watched the show. Like there was a character on the show who was supposedly the main character who was a good person, but then there was this dynamic kind of anti-hero or villain who was the real reason people watched. And, you know, a show like All in the Family had a touch of that. And uh, although Archie was ultimately a lot more sympathetic than Tony, and then the show, a lot of these nighttime soap operas like J.R. Ewing on Dallas um, and, uh, you know, you, you had like all of the nighttime soaps that followed in the footsteps of Dallas had a J.R. Ewing type of character that you watched the show for. And J.R. was a complete slime bag businessman who was trying to crush and destroy his enemies and bankrupt other people's companies. And, and, you know, just not a bad, not a good guy at all, but he wasn't the hero of the show. Like they, you know, there were all of these good characters or, or people who were trying to be good who were around him and they were supposedly the main characters. And even on like, you look at something like ER, the breakout star of ER from very early on was, was George Clooney's character, Doug Ross, who was self-destructive and, and, you know, a womanizer and, and kind of a little bit slippery, a bit of a heel, uh, like a Burt Lancaster character from the 1950s, but he wasn't the main, you know, Mark Green was the guy you were following, or maybe, I don't know, though all of the characters on that show were sort of unlikable. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm picking the wrong example, but you know what I'm saying? Like they weren't, they weren't strangling people to death in the weeds. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Why are we talking about this show 20 years later? Is it the unlikability of the protagonist? It's kind of like a question that's like really 35,000 foot level, but like, I'm, I'm really just curious, like why, why is someone like me doing a podcast that's diving into every single episode and, and you guys have been writing about the show for 20 years. What is it to you guys in your minds that make us still want to come back to it and revisit it 20 years later? It's a great show. It's one of the greatest shows ever made. It's also one of the most influential shows ever made. You might have to go back to, like, I Love Lucy in the 1950s to find a scripted show that had more of an impact on what television looked like over the next few decades. Like, TV in 2019 looks and sounds and feels the way it does 
because of the success of this one show. And that's why we're talking about it, because it's just like, it made TV what it is today for good and for ill. It's an extraordinary show. It's deep enough that you can pick it apart episode by episode in the way that we have in our book, in the way that you guys do on your podcast. It's just, there's so much there all the time, every time I go back to revisit it. There's never been a time where I've watched an episode of The Sopranos, uh, you know, a second or a third or a fifth time and felt, man, that was a waste. I could have been looking at something else. I always get something out of it. Totally. You know, just last, just the night before we recorded this podcast, I, I did this, you know, I programmed the Sopranos Film Festival at IFC Center, and we had uh, programs on different aspects of the show, and we did a thing on dream sequences and psychoanalysis. And we built it around the fifth season episode, The Test Dream, and we showed it with Unchin Andalou, the collaboration between Luis Buñuel and Salvador Dali, which is uh, really kind of the originator of dream language in cinema as we know it. And And the two things turned out to have all sorts of interesting connections, but the thing that struck me was the discussion after... Afterwards, I had Margaret Lyons of the New York Times, a critic friend of mine who used to work for Vulture with me, and this uh, psychologist, Dr. David Gutman, who specializes in, in dream interpretation. And, and uh, um, we spent the entire 45 minutes just talking about the dream from the test dream. We took like one or two small detours, and that wasn't the original plan. The original plan was to talk briefly about Tony's dream in the test dream, and then maybe we were going to talk about Funhouse, Employee of the Month, and, and some other issues related to you know psychotherapy and, and psychology and Freud and Jung and all this stuff. But like, my point is, that one 20-minute section was so rich that we talked about it for 45 minutes, and I looked up, and there was somebody in the theater holding up a finger, which meant, you know, we have one more minute left. I was like, where did the time go? But that's The Sopranos. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a painting in Irina's room or hotel room of a David Hockney painting, and we spent 30 minutes talking about the meaning of that David Hockney painting, and it's just a classic ah. example of, of the show. What are some of your nitpicks about the show? someone who's watched it multiple times, is there anything that kind of uh, sticks in your craw? Well, one thing that I've noticed in, you know, rewatching all of the episodes of the show is, you know, this is a show that is set in a, in a violently patriarchal society. And so you're, you know, women get a pretty raw deal, even the ones like Carmela and Adriana who are complicit in the, in the, in the depravity of the men. But, you know, that being said, there were, there were a few times where I think the show crossed the line and actually, photographed particularly young women in kind of a leering or sexist salacious way and it happened so infrequently which is kind of stunning considering that the show went on the air 20 years ago long before the industry was really conscious of this in the way they are now and the fact that it was heavily male like the production staff was heavily male and i find it remarkable how sensitive to that stuff they were given the kind of show that it was but when they do cross the line it sticks out it really sticks out and like there was an episode in the there was a moment in the test stream which i just mentioned where you know, Tony invites a prostitute up to his room, which is something that he does. He's a mobster and he's a pig. And uh, there's a shot of her turning around and bending down into the mini fridge to get something. You get a flash of underwear. And there's like actually no reason why we needed that for that particular part of the story. And like I said, it's like it's they had such generally good control over that stuff that that when they do kind of seem to turn into entourage for a second, you 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 notice and it, and you feel kind of disappointed in the show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could also look similarly at like the murder of Lorraine Caluso in season five, and that was 
you know, David just talked to us about this. The, the character was kind of modeled after a TV critic who, who Chase didn't like the way she had written about the show. And so he made her into a character who would be brutally and humiliatingly murdered while running around naked after being in the shower. And it's, it's kind of <laughs> gross to watch. You know, it's every now and then the show did it. As Matt says, it was pretty rare, but it st- and it stands out even more as a result. But they did go there occasionally. And it reminds me, in a weird way, it reminds me of, like, you know, I'm a big fan of older films, and older films obviously have their own sets of problems, but one of them is race, and one of my favorite movies is Casablanca, and it always bothers me, like, even though there's a major character, uh, Sam, played by Paul Dooley, who's African-American, the relationship between him and Bogart is unbelievably advanced for, for a film in the 1940s. Like, they really do seem like they're best friends and they're equals, and yet he calls him Sam, and Sam calls him Mr. Rick. Like, even when they're alone together hanging out in the hotel, uh, in the, or sorry, in the nightclub and uh, after hours, and, and I'd always, even as a teenager watching that, I thought, God, I wish he called him Rick. Huh. And it's like, it's just, that's just a little touch, but it's like, you can't go back in a time machine and tell, and tell the people who made the movie, hey, why don't you have him call him just plain Rick? Because who cares? Like, why would he be calling him? I understand why they would be doing that well. There's a bunch of uh, uh, white people standing around, like because for appearances' sake, given the social protocol of the situation, that's how he would address him. But when it's just the two of them shooting the breeze and there's nobody else around, why would he call him Mr. Rick? You know, and 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 it's all contextual. All of these things are contextual, and like that's not to say that Casablanca isn't still a great movie. Just that it's also a product of its time, and and you know, The Sopranos is as well, perhaps in ways that nobody who made it was conscious of when they were doing it. Well said. Thoughts on Meadow for a moment. We were talking about the women in the show, and do either of you see this sort of setup in place where in the finale there's a potential for her to be the heiress or the boss of the family, like an Annalisa character in Commendatory? Did either of you guys ever feel that from her protection of the family in season one and sort of her development throughout the series? I don't know I that never... they could go there. It's it's a big deal in Commendatory that to- Tony reacts to Annalise like this could never happen on his side of the ocean. But, I mean, you, you could certainly see a circumstance where she goes up and she becomes a criminal defense lawyer and at least represents guys in the family. But I, I it's, it seems like a bridge too far for her to actually get directly engaged in that way, knowing both her and knowing the culture around her. Yeah, I don't, I, you know, it's fiction, so, you know, if Tony can visit Purgatory for two episodes, I suppose something like that could happen and we could we could accept it as viewers if it was set up, but... I always thought, like, you know, I, other people have mentioned that to me, and I think it's interesting how Meadow goes from sort of um, being suspicious of her father and his business and resenting it and, and resenting the way that it's kind of colored people's perceptions of the whole family to being on his side in the later seasons and kind of reflexively wanting to, to fight anybody who would, who would try to put him in jail. That could have been an interesting storyline. But, you know, if anybody's going to take over that family, why, you know, I... I I I just think like if it's a woman, why wouldn't it be Carmela? <laughs> Carmela's a formidable person, and there were several moments uh, uh, during the rewatch where I thought, "Wow, she's as cold as Tony." She's and she's cold like Tony is is sort of cold in a in a hot blooded way. Like you can see his emotions rising, his temper flaring, and he gets very physical. But she will will verbally strip the flesh off of somebody's back, and her her voice never raises. 
Carmela is tough like that. You know, I, I don't think you understand me. I want you to write your, uh, you know, what did she say to the recommendation? You're going to write that letter. You're going to write that letter. That's exactly the scene that I'm thinking of. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm thinking of right there. That scene right there, that's all you need to know about Carmela. Yeah. You know, for all of the play acting that she does, like that's strategic where she, you know, she deliberately doesn't learn too many of the details of Tony's business. Like she kind of knows everything that's going on. And she actually, I think she often has a clearer sense of, of what some of the threats are than Tony does because he's, he's a little more scatterbrained. Like she's more focused. Yeah, that's interesting. The other scene that I think of with her is when she's sitting on the couch and she tells him that, you know, I'm going to Rome with Rosalie and, uh, you know, if if, if you give, you put up a fight, I'm, I might just kill myself. And the way her face just drops from sort of happy to completely uh, stone-faced, stoic, it was it's just amazing. She goes from zero to 100 so many different directions all the time. There's also a moment in uh, the, the Night in White Satin Armor where um, Irina calls the house and, and, and uh, he, you know, Carmela confronts Tony because she knows what's going on, and and he says, hey, "You don't understand. It's it's over. It's been over between us for a long time." And you know, she's a poor girl, and he, he kind of gives it subs. Yeah, and she and she says, "You're trying to make me feel sorry for a whore who fucks you." Yeah, brilliant, <laughs> brilliant. Where did the David Chase for for the book, The Soprano Sessions? Where did the David Chase conversations take place? Uh, there was a, a handful of French and Italian restaurants on the Upper East Side that we would go to. It was usually the same one, and I think like uh, a block or two up from Shakespeare and Company, because I would always stop there if I got if I arrived early. But sometimes we went around the corner, and one time I think we went to a hotel bar, and a customer there was complaining that we were being too loud. <laughs> Interesting. I'm playing. Yeah, but why should why should our interviews for this book be any different than when Alan and I worked together at the paper? <laughs> I'm playing Billy Joel's scenes from an Italian restaurant in my head right now as you said that. <laughs> does uh, does David Chase's accidental, and I'm putting that in air quotes, reveal about the final sequence in the book change anything about what you guys have internalized the ending to be? Not really. I feel like I had come around to that idea that the scene was about death without it necessarily being a scene where Tony dies a while back, you know, at least as far back as when he wrote that article for DGA Quarterly. Um, I mean, what was interesting was, you know, and people picked up on this, and it, it's been a little frustrating. You see all these articles aggregating the, this death scene quote, but they're specifically aggregating somebody else who already aggregated it and offered their own spin, and they're accepting this guy's spin, which is, oh, David Chase just said he killed Tony. Yeah, that was, I'm just going to tell you, that was Chris Orr from The Atlantic, and I, and I, kind of yelled at him a little bit because he left out the parts of the argument that contradicted him, which, which unfortunately yeah. is sort of a common thing in commentary about the Sopranos. You quote the parts that support your argument and you leave out anything that complicates it because that makes your life harder. <laughs> so, what, I mean, what Chase was talking about when he said death scene was this idea that they never filmed where t- t- Johnny Sack is still in charge, New-, New York is crushing New Jersey in some kind of war, and Tony goes to grovel hat in hand uh, you know, to basically plead for his life and plead for peace, and you see him go through the Lincoln Tunnel, and then you know, he cuts to black or fade to white, and that's the end, and it's implied that he died, and he didn't do that. And instead he did this other Holston scene instead because he did not want to explicitly or even that implicitly kill Tony, even though he wanted to talk about mortality. So... It was just really fascinating for him to talk as much about his intentions as he did, because he's never done that in the past. He's always hated doing it. I think once he made that Freudian slip and used the words death scene, 
uh, it, it like it gave him license to talk about it in a way he hadn't before. Even though you know we get to the end of those forty five minutes and he still hasn't said Tony's dead or Tony's alive because that's besides the point. Yeah, and also uh, another couple of things to bear in mind. Um, one of them is that you know David Chase. I, I have tend I tend to find that the people who watch this show who are absolutely insistent that Tony got shot at that moment at the diner and they won't accept any other answer are the people who have very little sense of the, of the film history tradition that David Chase comes out of. Like they, like generally the more, you know, about movies made before the year of your birth, the less likely you are to be a Tony dies truther. I found. And, you know, Chase came of age as a film goer in the 1960s, which was the heyday of the, what I call, European art, uh, art house head scratcher ending. And, you know, movies like Blow Up, Antonioni's Blow Up, um, almost anything by Roman Polanski, uh, you know, 2001, A Space Odyssey, The Conversation, you know, movies like that where you're, you're supposed to come out of it and not be entirely sure what happened at the level of plot, but that's kind of not the point of it. You're supposed to argue about what it meant. And, and um, as we are recording this, I'm getting ready for the final night of the Sopranos Film Festival, and we're showing Blow Up. And Blow Up, Antonioni's 1966 film, which is about a, a photographer who thinks he he captured a murder while he was uh, shooting pictures in the park, and he endlessly sits there in the dark room enlarging this photograph, trying to prove that that a murder happened. That's kind of like almost an anticipatory metaphor for how people treat this ending of The Sopranos. But the end of Blow Up is he 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 not only can he not prove that a murder took place, but he he seems to suffer some kind of a psychotic break. I mean, like, it's really hard, like, even to this day, if you show the ending of that movie to uh, five different people, they're going to give you five different interpretations of what it means. And this movie is so important to David Chase that he he has a scene in his movie, Not Fade Away, which is about a basically his own coming of age as a, as a musician and then a film buff, where the main character and his girlfriend go to see Blow Up in a theater and they talk about the style of it, which is the, basically the style of The Sopranos, like the things that they're talking about, like the shots of the wind moving through the trees and the silence the use of silence on the soundtrack and the kind of mysteriousness of it is something that they tried to cultivate. So that's one level of it. And the other is, if you look at the show itself, like one thing, uh, one other area where The Sopranos was incredibly consistent was they don't tell you the answer. And there's a scene in season three, the episode where Livia dies, where uh, AJ is trying to analyze a Robert Frost poem for his homework. And he asked for help from his sister, and Meadow won't give him the answer. She gives him a series of prompts that are intended to stimulate independent thought. And he gets increasingly frustrated and finally says, why don't you just fucking tell me the answer? Like, he doesn't want to think for himself. He wants to be told what the answer is. But she doesn't give him the answer. And then right after that scene, he hears a creaking of floorboards. And he thinks maybe it's his dead grandmother, and he goes, Grandma? But the episode doesn't answer the question of whether it was Grandma. And then at the reception, you see the reflection of Big Pussy in the mirror. No one who's in the hallway could have seen that reflection. Only we, the viewer, could have seen it. Mm -hmm. So what does that, that, what does that mean? That's not explained. The Russian in Pine Barrens disappears and is never heard from again. We don't know what happened to him. Dr. Melfi is assaulted. And she pointedly refuses uh, the, you know, the possibility of Tony exacting vengeance on her behalf, and the and the rapist is never caught. And you know, Ralphie, I spent years and years thinking that Ralphie set that fire in the stable. But Alan and I, when we looked at it again, uh, we weren't so sure. And I don't think the episode tells you if Ralphie set that fire. So this is the Sopranos' mo: is they don't 
give you the answer. And we're sitting here like AJ saying, give us the answer, give us the answer, David Chase, because we don't want to live in that uncertainty. Like it's just too painful for us. It's too frustrating. We want to be rid of it. We want to, you know, we want to be able to have an answer and then we can get on with our lives. And David (laughs) Chase doesn't do that. Yeah, it starts as early as season one, right, with Jimmy Altieri. Is he a rat or isn't he? And, you know, we never really fully know. Like, it's just not evident. But I think David Chase has said on record that, oh, yeah, Jimmy was a rat. But it's that what we see in the frames and the four corners of the screen do not fully convey that. So. And Alan, and, you know, Alan, like, Alan will tell you about this, but, like, when we interviewed uh, Chase and we got to the part about Ralphie and the fire, like, that, that part was surprising to us, too. Yeah. Yeah, I asked, did Ralphie set the fire? And he said, no. And then we start talking about it for a couple of minutes. And he stops him and says, wait a minute. I meant yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I guess what I'm telling you is like, I, and I keep telling this to people and they won't accept it, but it's like, look, you can go around telling me that this is a puzzle and you can solve it all you want to. But in order to accept the idea that this sequence is intended to to make you think that Tony got shot at that exact moment at the diner, you have to accept that this is a completely different show than the one that you've been watching for seven seasons. It goes completely against the philosophy and aesthetics of the show to have this ending be a puzzle that you can solve like it's a math problem. You know? Yeah. Like, like It would be like suddenly the, the show itself had some kind of psychotic break and became this thing that was totally different from anything it had ever been. And I just don't believe that that's, I mean, I, I'm telling you, that's not what happened. You know, like David Chase has said, if you want to interpret that way, that's a perfectly fine interpretation and he's not going to fight you on it. And he doesn't want to take that away from you, but he's also telling you that's not the point of the scene. And everything else he did in all seven seasons validates the idea that that's not the point of the scene. So if you want to say that is the point of the scene, you have to basically say, hey, Sopranos, all that stuff you did, I don't believe it. I think you were lying to me. You know, you think the show is lying to you? I don't. No. The show's just putting it out there and, and, and letting us kind of wrestle with the reality that life is ambiguous and there are no clean answers to things. And it's just, again, it's one of the reasons why I keep going back to it and revisiting it because it's an exercise in timelessness and just sort of like it's various stages of your life. The story will still have relevance to you depending on where you are in that journey. I think so. I think that's very true. And I also think that like uh, you just... It takes incredible discipline as a storyteller not to hand people the answers to things. You have to be, you have to have a particular temperament going into it, and then you have to have discipline. You have to have, like, you have to really be on message and be really, really, really tightly controlled, because everybody, every storyteller at a certain point, like, if they hear your main character's a scumbag, there's going to be this temptation to want to soften them up and make them more lovable and, like, give them a dog they can cuddle or something like that. And, and, you know, to resist the urge to do that, you have to be very strong and to resist the urge to like present these situations that can be read in a number of ways and not hand people the answer. You have to be really strong for that too, you know, and a lot of people aren't that strong and Chase and all of the people he worked with were strong people and they didn't do that. And I think they should be applauded for that. I don't think we should be sitting there like undermining them and poking holes in them and basically accusing them of being liars, which is what happens when you try to say, you know, try to superimpose a particular ending on that final scene that is not supported by the evidence and not supported by the characteristics of the series that you supposedly love so much. Like, let's respect the show. Let's respect the show and take it at its word when it says that it's doing what it's doing. That's all I'm asking. Like, and if you come up to me and say, I believe Tony died, I think like, 
great. Good for you. I mean, I'm not telling you you're, you're wrong or something. I'm saying great, but let me, let me have other ideas about it. And let's all live together in peace and harmony and loving the show. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. I got a few more questions for you guys. We'll do it as kind of like a lightning round, and then I'll let you get out of here. I'm very grateful for your time. Do you guys, between the two of you, do you agree or disagree on the ending? Are you in, is there, are you in concert, or is there some sort of fluidity to it? I think we're, we're mostly on the same page. Okay. I think, Alan, I don't know, Alan. I think, you, I think you're leaning more. I, I, I think you're leaning more towards Tony Dodd. I think definitely more than I am. That may be right, which is funny because I was much more hardcore. Obviously, Tony's alive, and you have stayed in the middle the entire time as the Mr. Ambiguous. I do. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely the, like, we don't know what happens. You, why don't you tell me what you think happened? Like, that's, 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 that's what I want to do. Don't know what hap- I'm, we don't know what happens, but he probably died, but we don't know. We have an, well, Alan makes an excellent case simply by reading, you know, not just the whole business of like, you never hear it coming, which people love the quote, but also like the, the visual and sort of sonic qualities of the show during that last season. Like, it feels like the show itself is on its deathbed, which I think does support this reading that eventually it's leading towards a particular death, i.e. Tony's. But it also like, you know, could possibly be the spectator, which was my original reading. And I've kind of moved away from it, but now I'm starting to come back to it because I keep thinking about how David Chase always said during our interviews that uh, one of his frustrations was that people kept loving these characters and finding them adorable, no matter how sickeningly depraved he made them. <laughs> so I almost wonder if like, there is some level of like, I'm going to, I'm going to take you guys out. You can't keep watching this. It's bad for you. You know, I'm not saying that's the only thing it means. I'm thinking, I think that's in the mix. Oh, for sure. It's definitely in the mix. Did you learn anything new doing this book that you didn't know before? Yeah, we learned a bunch. I would say the most sort of prominent bit of Sopranos trivia that I didn't know before. Uh, I, I was always curious why Robert Fanaro, who played Eugene Ponacorvo, is in the opening credits of season three when he does almost nothing in that season. And what Chase told me was they cast him to play Ralphie. And it didn't work out, and they realized it wasn't a good fit of actor and character, and they hired Joey Pants, but he was already under contract, so they wrote a new role for him, and he was in the credits that year. And now I'm trying to imagine like him as Ralphie, and it's very strange. Wow. I, I was surprised I was surprised to learn that um, not only had David Chase considered making, Sylvia, making uh, Stephen Van Sant Tony instead of Silvio, but that he had this different conception of the show, which is that it would have been more like, as he put it, a live-action Simpsons. And I'm trying to imagine what that would have looked like. And I guess probably something like Oliver Stone's Natural Born Killers, maybe. I don't know. Like, it's, hard, it's kind of hard to picture because the show that he ended up doing wasn't like that. But that was interesting. Robert Funaro is actually going to be on the podcast in a couple of weeks. I'm going to definitely ask him about that anecdote. That's fascinating. Did doing the book give you a sense of closure to the show? It, 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 does that make any sense? Like, was it a form of closure? It, it kind of was, and then now he's making this movie, and as we're <laughs> recording this podcast right now, they just announced that Vera Farmiga and John Bernthal are going to be in it, and now I'm assuming she's playing young Livia, and I'm very excited about that. But I didn't know John Bernthal. I didn't know John Bernthal's going to be in the movie. They, they, literally, they literally just announced it. They haven't said what roles they are, but my guess is Livia and Johnny Boy. I love Bernthal is one of my favorite actors right now. Like he, to me, he's like I feel the way about that guy that I used to feel about De Niro when I was a kid. Like, I'm like, I'll, I'll see anything he's in. I think he's just amazing. That's great. So the fact that there's that the story is continuing in some oblique fashion, even if it sounds like the movie is mainly going to be focused on Tiki Maltesanti, 
means that we don't get complete closure, but it definitely did feel like, you know, we were returning, we were coming full circle to this thing that made our careers in the first place and talking to all these people again and, and being at that reunion that Matt moderated. It's been really nice. I thought we were getting closure, but now I don't feel that way anymore <laughs> because one of the things that, like, the book came, the book went to press, the book came out, and we started to talk to other fans about the show, and they, and in conversations with fans about the show, I thought of all this other stuff that we should have put in the book that we didn't, and all of these other interpretations of different scenes and characters that, you know, I feel like, ah, oh, God, I feel like such an idiot for not thinking of that. So, so I kind of feel like I want to go back and rewrite the book now. Yeah, you can do it. You can, <laughs> you can always do it. You can always do an update in, in, at the 25th anniversary, right? I mean, look, the theories will never die. The theories will never end and the perspectives and the angles and sort of the existing in the universe is such a pleasurable place to be, even though it is kind of a dark place sometimes, but that's, that's what we are as humans. Oh, I was going to say, there's a moment, you just reminded me, there's a moment in uh, one of the season three episodes where Tony and Gloria are at the zoo and she's talking about uh, her philosophy of life. And she, and she uses a phrase that's uh, joyful participation in the sorrows of the world. Hmm. And I think that to me, that sums up the show. And that's what, that's what I love about the show is like, it is about the sorrows of the world and yet it's joyful in the way it depicts them. Putting you both on the spot here, favorite episode and why? Um, favorite episode or best episode? Uh, they're not mutually exclusive. If you want to pick one or the other, I'll take it. It, I mean, it's really obvious, but for me, it's college. Like, that's the episode that made The Sopranos The Sopranos. It, it's still like when you go back and you rewatch the show, it holds up spectacularly well as just, you know, the, the thesis statement for what the entire series was about uh, on top of being just the thing that, that created the phenomenon as it was. It's just a really good hour of TV. I guess I'd have to say my favorite one is Pine Barrens because I've seen I saw it so many times, like even before we wrote the book, and also in my capacity as a TV festival programmer, I've I've contrived reasons to show it on the big screen two different times. So so I guess like the thing you have seen the most must be your favorite. So I guess that must be my favorite. Alan, Matt. Uh, the book is The Soprano Sessions. It was a pleasure to read and a pleasure to spend time with. And this conversation has been equally great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thank you. And we're sorry for gassing on as we always do in these kinds of things. I love it. I could do it for hours. Thanks again. <laughs> so could we. Take care. 